This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Human beings are social. That is, we, we long to fit into our surroundings in ways great and small. Think, for example, about parties. Nobody wants to show up to a formal gathering with jeans and a t-shirt on. And the reverse is true. Nobody wants to show up to a social gathering where jeans and t-shirts are expected in a tuxedo. Uh, think about it this way. Uh, it's, even if we're dressed right, there might be social situations where we wouldn't be comfortable. For example, I don't know of a single sports enthusiast uh, who's going to look forward to attending a poetry and lute-themed soiree. <laughs> uh, academics are going to avoid parties hosted by celebrity gossip mongers. And almost everyone cowers at the thought of an event held at the home of a theologian. <laughs> the social person hates being out of place. And yet, I'm sure every one of you have walked through a door at some point in your life, looked around and said, these are not my people, and I don't belong here. Well, in our passage that we're looking at today, Peter tells us that the I don't belong here sensation doesn't give us just cause to withdraw into the corners of our homes and remain there. So what is our play? What's our move Get your Bibles open, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're doing that, I want to show you the big structure of this passage. Verses 11 and 12 really start a new section in 1 Peter that runs all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. It's the next three Sundays we're looking at these passages. He is now shifting from talking about our identity as believers to saying to us, okay, now that we've got that established, how do you live in this world as an exile, as a sojourner, as an alien? How do you do that? Now that we've got your identity situated, you can't withdraw, you got to be in it, so how are you going to do that? So in verses 11 and 12, Peter's going to give us the big idea, big idea, and then in chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 7, he's going to give us examples, not exhaustive, but a sampling of examples of how to live out the main idea within certain social contexts. Christians and governing authorities, servants and masters, wives and husbands. How do we live out these two verses in these various social settings? What I want to do today is just kind of walk through the verses and give you some commentary on it so you follow the train of thought. And I'm going to close with four applications. Okay? Let's look at this. Verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, keep in mind, these are Christians who have been saved out of a previous life. These Christians came from the general population within the Roman Empire. 
And what Peter's saying is, I don't want you going back. You can't go back. You're a new creation now. The old is gone, the new has come. This is the Augustine story I've shared with you numerous times. I'll do it again. Remember Augustine? Augustine, before he became a Christian, lived a very promiscuous lifestyle. After he became a Christian, he was an itinerant preacher, and he would travel from city to city to preach. And he entered into a city, and there was a woman who lived there with whom he had had a relationship with in the past. She recognized him, came running up to him, says, Augustine, Augustine. And he barely acknowledged her. Barely acknowledged her. And she was shocked, given their past, that he would just react that way. And she said, Augustine, it is I. He says, oh, I know. But it is not I. It's not I. You've been saved out of something to something. And Peter's saying, I don't want you going back. You're a new creation. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Gentiles is a way of using a broad term to describe those who are not part of the community of faith. It's unbelievers. So as Christians exhibit their new creation status which has done away with things like sexual immorality and covetousness and idolatry, Peter is saying, look, they're going to look at you as you conduct yourself that way, and they're going to charge you with evil. I know it sounds astonishing that somebody would do that. But if you've ever been to public school, you know this is true. Right? You will be mocked for your holiness. And God warned us there would be people like that in the world. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There are people in the world who look at good and say, that's evil. There are people in the world who look at evil and say, that is good. So there are numerous places within secular society where Christians don't go with the flow. We don't conform to the world's way of life. That was true of the Christians that Peter writes to. And in such cases, they were viewed by the broader society as subversive, even evil. You live with, you work with people who call evil good and good evil. And when you live a holy life before the Lord, you will be mocked for it. You'll be harassed. So what is Peter's pastoral concern? It's hard to be holy when mocked and harassed. It is. Peter probably understands this difficulty, which is why he's so concerned to emphasize to these Christians that they keep their conduct honorable. In other words, here's the bottom line to this. Let's not shoot ourselves in the foot by being jerks out there. Okay? Let's not do that. Let's not shoot the body of Christ in the gut by being jerks out there. Now notice in the text, Peter doesn't summon us to engage in a verbal campaign of self-defense? Did you see that in the text? Peter adopts an action-speak-louder-than-words approach. I think Peter's offering us a tactic that most of us in the West particularly will reject. He is confident some unbelievers will be saved when they notice the godliness of believers. We want to solve everything with talk, talk, talk. Peter's saying live, live, live. 
So the main exhortation, the main idea, the main call to action is you are to retain your distinctiveness as a member of the family of God. The old is gone, the new has come. You're to retain your distinctiveness all the while keeping your conduct honorable before unbelievers. That's the big idea of this passage. Now what he's going to do in the rest of it is say, okay, now let's drill down into some social context. Let me show you what that looks like. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Be subject is the word submit. Peter tells his people to submit to some authority five times within the next 35 verses. Five times. And boy, do we bristle at that. Boy, do we bristle at that. Submit. Submit. Well, let's look at the text. For whose sake? What's the text say? For the Lord's sake. We submit to governing authorities because it is the will of God. Submission is a God-appointed virtue. The more we distance ourselves from practicing it, the further from the heart of God we reveal ourselves to be. So submission is a virtue. Now, Peter is not naive. Keep in mind, this is the same Peter who was hauled before the Sanhedrin and forbidden to preach the gospel, to which he said, I can't do that because I have to obey God on this. I think this puts Peter on pretty firm footing when he's calling us to submit to the governing authorities. I can almost hear him say, we obey the authorities unless they contradict God. There was another one who had to process this. That was Martin Luther King Jr. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he wrote to fellow clergy who had criticized his willingness to break laws. And in the letter, this is what he said. He said, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would agree with Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of August of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. So this is how he's sorting it out. What does he do? He appeals to the moral law of God. This is how you determine what's a just law and what's not a just law. This is what Peter did as he was hauled before the Sanhedrin. Is this law that's being thrown at me a just law or an unjust law? He's looking at the moral law of God. He's saying, no, it's not. I have to speak the gospel. Now, let's not reduce this to the lowest common denominator where all we're concerned with is obeying the good 
in the governing authorities. Let's not just slide by by doing the minimum. It says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. I think there, it leaves room for more than just, well, I obey the laws. In other words, are there ways to go above and beyond the call of duty to keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles? Are there ways to go above and beyond the call of duty? There is epigraphic and literary evidence from Peter's time that not only did rulers praise and honor those who undertook good works which benefited the city, but at the same time they promised likewise to publicly honor others who would undertake similar benefactions in the future. And this honor was given to people of faith, Jewish and Christian. One such inscription reads this, and this is a mouthful, but I'll sum it up at the end. Ancient inscription from Peter's time. This is what it says. Resolved by the council and the people, Dion, son of Diopathes, moved that whereas Agathocles, son of Hegemon of Rhodes, having imported a quantity of wheat and finding that the corn in the market was being sold at more than five drachmae, persuaded by the superintendent of the market and wishing to please the people, sold all his corn cheaper than that which was being sold in the market. Be it hereby resolved by the council and the people to grant citizenship to Agathes of Rhodes upon equal and similar terms to himself and his descendants. Further, that the Essenes allot him a place in a tribe and a thousand, that the temple wardens inscribe these grants in his honor in the temple of Artemis, where they inscribe the rest of the grants of citizenship, to the end that all may know that the people understand how to repay with its favors those who are benefactors to it. Okay, what is all that? All right, there was this good dude who brought his own hard-earned farmed goods to sell at an affordable price in the market because the market price had been inflated. The pagan governing authorities recognized this charitable work in a very public way. So here's one example of a man of faith contributing to the good of his city in a way that was practical, sacrificial, and went above and beyond the call of duty. Remember the big idea. Retain your distinctiveness as a member of the family of God while keeping your conduct honorable before unbelievers. And one of the ways that we do this is by submitting to governing authorities out of reverence for the will of God. And we also don't settle for the lowest common denominator by just abiding by just laws. We look for opportunities to contribute to the good of our community. Now Peter moves to the next arena wherein this is lived out as he addresses servants. Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Here again, servants submit. Submit to your masters, not begrudgingly, but with all respect. Submit, he says, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. I think Peter calls us to something here that's very difficult. Very difficult. And what happens in the text is he moves into a digression. He starts by addressing servants, but what happens after that is actually a general exhortation about how to bear up under unjust suffering. And it's very difficult for us. Enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. Well, let's be honest. You know, the moment we detect a whiff of a rights violation, we throw the book at them. 
Well, there may be legitimate legal avenues to pursue that the moral law of God would sign off on. Fine. But remember, what's he saying? It is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Responding righteously to unjust suffering is commendable in God's sight. Let me try to get this to street level. If you're a Christian and your supervisor is constantly getting on you about your lack of quality, the lack of quality in your work or being late or having an unprofessional attitude or appearance, that's not unjust suffering. You're getting what you deserve. On the other hand, if your consciousness of God is reflected in your hard work, your diligent efforts, your timely manner, your professional appearance, but your supervisor continually uses you as a butt of jokes or discriminates you or credits your work to others or passes you over for promotion simply because of your faith or the way in which you conduct yourself, that is unjust suffering. And what does Peter say? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You may not get your just credit or honor before man, but you will receive your just reward before God. You are to retain your distinctiveness as a member of the family of God while keeping your conduct honorable before unbelievers. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Well, stop there. My word. You talk about unjust suffering. Does it get any more unjust than what Jesus endured? No. No. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What have we been called to? Suffering. You've been called to it. Peter's main purpose is to commend Jesus as our example. And if Jesus, the Lord, did not sin despite suffering intensely as the righteous one, then believers should follow his example and refrain from sinning or using deceit when they're mistreated as Christ's disciples. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on this book, says, One cannot step into the footsteps of Jesus and head off in any other direction than the direction he took. And his footsteps lead to the cross, through the grave, and onward to glory. You cannot get to glory by bypassing the cross. The road to glory for every Christian travels straight through the cross. Let's trace his steps. Verse 22 says he didn't sin. Jesus suffered and died, though he committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. If we trace his steps, if we follow his steps, there's no reason to think that we will escape unjust suffering. 
And when we suffer, that is no excuse to sin. He, he, he did not verbally lash out or threaten those who caused his unjust suffering. Instead, Jesus went to his death like a silent lamb being led to slaughter. He trusted God. He trusted himself to the Father, knowing that there would be a reckoning, but that the reckoning was not in his hands. God has not put that authority in our hands. There will be a reckoning, but it is God who will execute that. You're to retain your distinctiveness as a member of the family of God while keeping your conduct honorable before unbelievers. Chapter 3, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now Peter is addressing primarily wives who are in marriages where the husband is not a follower of Jesus Christ. There are broader general um, ways in which the home is to be ordered that Paul talks about in Colossians and Ephesians. First Peter has got a a niche in its approach to this. Some of the principles extend beyond just this one application, but wives married to unbelievers is the focal point. What does he say? If you're in a marriage where your husband isn't following Jesus, what's Peter saying? The, the beauty of your life is influential. Badgering your husband to follow Jesus isn't likely to be a winning strategy. And once again, Peter is placing the emphasis not on lecturing or preaching, but on seeing the beauty of a life lived in service to God. You're to retain your distinctiveness as a member of the family of God while keeping your conduct honorable before unbelievers. And he says, do not let your adorning be external. Got the braiding of the hair, the gold jewelry, the clothing... Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is a warning against extravagance, self-centered display. Peter, I think, is attacking immodesty and ostentatiousness. The adornment God desires is what? It's internal. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be greatly praised. And so it's worth asking, does your financial and time investment in the hidden person of the heart outweigh your investment in the external? Now, Peter uses examples from the holy women of the past to encourage the women in these churches to submit to their own husbands with a gentle and quiet spirit. The most important comment is in verse 5, that these women put their hope in God. The comment is instructive because it tells us that these women did not submit to their husbands because they believed their husbands were superior to them intellectually or spiritually. They submitted to their husbands because they were confident that God would reward all those who trust in him. 
Hope in 1 Peter is very specific. It's focused. And it's focused on our future inheritance. It follows that submission in this passage has as its energy source the future assured to those who've been born again. Last verse in this section. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now he's shifted. Now he's talking to believing husbands in marriages where their wife is also a believer. Now, why only one verse for husbands? Wouldn't they need like 10 chapters? (laughs) Well, my wife would say that. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. Maybe it had to do with the nature of the authority structure in marriage. There's no call for husbands to submit to their wives as there has been in the previous groups. Does that mean that submission creates more complexities that Peter feels he needs to unpack? Or could Peter simply be taking care of all he has to say to husbands in one verse? We don't know. Well, there's only one verse. It's a pregnant one. Live with your wives in an understanding way has been taken by some just to mean be gentle, be considerate with your wife. I think it includes that, but there's more to that. This, this word understanding in Peter's vocabulary is bound up with knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. So a husband's devotion to Christ profoundly influences how he sees his wife and relates to her. The, the very next phrase provides color to that picture. Showing her honor or respect as the weaker vessel. Now, many have concluded that this this weaker vessel reference is simply about general physical traits. Generally speaking, a wife possesses less physical strength than her husband. Well, that might be true. I don't think it captures the flow of the thought. Susan Foe, I think, has it right. She says, the wife may be considered weak because of her role as a wife. She, by marrying, has accepted a position where she submits herself to her husband. Such a position is vulnerable, open to exploitation. The husband is commanded not to take advantage of the woman's vows of submission. In other words, the implication is that her acceptance of a position of weakness in the marriage through submission is a call to her husband for consideration and thoughtful support. So husbands honor their wives because they share the same destiny. And husbands, listen, look at this. Husbands who ignore this, who do not relate to, engage with their wives in this way, what happens? Their prayers will be hindered. Their prayers will be hindered. God does not bless with his favor those who are in positions of authority and abuse those who are under them by mistreating them. He does not bless with his favor those people in positions of authority who abuse that authority. Now let me close with four applications. Four applications. Number one, embrace your identity as an alien. Obviously, this theme is thick throughout 1 Peter. It's very thick. But it recurs again in this passage. Christian, you are an exile and a sojourner. You will never fully fit in secular society. You won't. The good that God calls us to will be mocked and ridiculed. And it ought not surprise you because Jesus said it would. John chapter 15. 
If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, (laughs) the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Embrace your identity as an alien. Sam Albury talks about a friend of his who's got um, a picture on her office wall. It's one of those quotes that's been printed up on flowery paper and framed, and it's on the wall. And the quote says this, those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. When I came across that, I tried it. I put on a music video, and I just muted it. It was stunningly hilarious. (laughs) There's a lot of strutting and pouting and contorted movements, and it just doesn't make any sense. You put back on the music, and, well, for me, it still doesn't make sense, but I get how someone would think that. Those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. As Christians, we dance to the music of the gospel. And there are many who just don't hear the music. The world may think you're mad. Okay. You know why. You're hearing the music. Second, social order is critical to human flourishing. How we as Christians conduct ourselves within the world, how we conduct ourselves within a specific geopolitical sphere, how servants conduct themselves in relationships to their masters, how wives conduct themselves in relationship to their husbands, how husbands conduct themselves in relationship to their wives. All of this social structure that Peter is unpacking for us cannot be reduced simply to being a survival strategy within the first century Roman Empire. God has woven authority structures all through society, even all creation. It starts with the intra-Trinitarian relationships of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit where we have authority structures there. And we needlessly harm ourselves and miss the blessing of walking in his ways if we, if we ignore these. And it's not just the scriptures that point this out. The social sciences have been saying this for years. The rule of law is strongest in communities where stable married families dominate the landscape. The number one predictor of economic mobility for poor children is the share of two-parent families in the neighborhood. The model the scriptures set up with with structures of appropriate authority and submission are there for our good. And now let me put the weight on us. The ones primarily responsible for faithfully exemplifying these these social orders are Christians. Peter does not address unbelievers. He doesn't have those kinds of lofty expectations. The expectations are targeted at us only, Christians. Which suggests something I won't dive into now, but it suggests that the key to human flourishing is to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Third, 
Holiness is an evangelistic strategy. Peter's very clear about it. He says, there will be those who are won over by your good deeds. Christian, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. I heard a story about this last week um, that illustrates this well. There was um, a man by the name of Sam who's an elder of a large church on the West Coast. And uh, during the day, he's an attorney, and he's a very evangelistically active guy. And uh, he was out uh, lunch with some colleagues and fellow attorneys. He turned to the guy next to him and said, I would like you to be my guest at uh, my church on Sunday. Invite him to church. And the man said, well, what church do you go to? And he told him the name of the church. And the man said, I will never go to that church under any circumstances. And Sam was surprised by the reaction, the strong reaction. So he said, have you been there before? He says, no. And I will not ever go. Sam said, wow, that's, that's pretty strong judgment. What, what's the deal? And the man said, the most crooked attorney I know of in this city goes to that church. Sam went back and relayed the story to his pastor. His pastor climbed into the pulpit on Sunday. This is what he said. Quote, I don't know which one of you attorneys is that one. <laughs> but I wish you'd get your act together or quit saying you belong to this church. Because the character of your life is making evangelism impossible. <laughs> we lay a platform of credibility when we do what is right. When we live a holy life. Let's not shoot ourselves in the foot by being jerks out there. Last, imitate Jesus' example of suffering. For to this you have been called. What is the this? Suffering. You've been called to suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You want a summation of the entire book of 1 Peter? I'll give it to you. Did Jesus live a perfectly righteous life? And we all said, yes. Did, did human beings crucify Jesus for his perfectly righteous life because he lived this way. Yes, Jesus was crucified for the things he said and did. Did human beings begin following Jesus because of his perfectly righteous life and his suffering? Answer, yes. The thief on the cross, watching Jesus suffer unjustly, says, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, You'll be there. How about the centurion at the foot of the cross? Just a few moments after the thief made his declaration, we read this. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. In the middle of Jesus' suffering, there were those who mocked him and those who praised him. This is our model. This is our model. 
I think this passage corrects two opposite errors. An unwillingness to suffer unjustly. We generally don't have a willingness to do that. And it corrects the opposite error. If we live like Jesus, everyone will like us. It corrects these two errors. It says, no, if you live like Jesus, some will want to crucify you. But it also says, are you willing to suffer unjustly? So in our faithfulness to honor Christ with our minds, our mouths, our bodies, there will be those among us who want to crucify us. And in our faithfulness to honor Christ with our minds, our mouths, our bodies, there will be those among us who will glorify God because of it. You're to retain your distinctiveness as a member of the family of God while keeping your conduct honorable before unbelievers. Let me close with a story. Herb and Ruth Klingen, uh, they, they talked about the time when they spent uh, and endured terrible treatment within a Japanese internment camp in the Philippines. And uh, they write about this story. They talk about how people were murdered. They tell about the horrors of the camp. And, and uh, in his diary, Herb describes that those three years, in those three years at that camp, um, he names a man by the name of Konishi. Konishi was the fiercest, most hated of the Japanese authorities. He was a ruthless, brutal, murderous torture who starved people to death, who shot people through the head, who, who did all kinds of crazy things. And he writes this, Konishi found an inventive way to abuse us. He increased the food ration, but gave us Pele, which is unhusked rice. Eating the rice with its razor-sharp outer shell would cause intestinal bleeding that would kill us in hours. And we had no tools to remove the husks, and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with a heavy stick consumed more calories than the rice would supply. It was a death sentence for all internees. And he goes on to tell uh, how before that could be consumed, but the hunger, the consuming hunger, would, would cause you to eat anything. And thus people would eat this, and they would die. Well, they were liberated by General Douglas MacArthur on February 24, 1945. And it was the very day Konishi had planned to kill the Klingons. And Herb closes this wonderful testimony by saying, Years after the war, we learned that Konishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes and hanged. Before his execution, he professed conversion to Christianity, saying that he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries that he had persecuted. Konishi was another centurion, won over by watching how the innocent suffered. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. And Lord, we need your help with that. To bear up underneath suffering when it's unjust.
grates against our every nerve. So I pray that you'd show us Jesus, his example. That we would follow in his footsteps. And that we would find joy in doing so. For it's to this that we've been called. And we pray, Lord, as that unfolds, that there would be those among us who see our good deeds and glorify you on the day of visitation. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.